Hey, Chicago Fire fans and Major League Soccer fans, welcome to the next episode of Feed the Fire, a Chicago Fire podcast. It is Friday afternoon, July 14th. We've got a lot to talk about, so we are going to look back at the victory over Montreal by the Chicago Fire. We're going to look forward and preview their next matchup against Toronto FC, and then we're going to look back sadly at the U.S. men's national team semifinal gold cup loss to Panama and talk a little bit about some of the players and how they performed in the gold cup as well as address some Christian Roldan hate that has been going on in one of my group chats. Uh, but before we do that, just a reminder, we are brought to you by Skira Icelandic Spring Water available at your local 7-Eleven. And another reminder, please make sure that you're out there sharing the show, sharing the podcast, liking, subscribing, rating, and reviewing, and, you know, generally contributing to our rise in the algorithms online. Now, let's dive into the coverage. It was a bizarro Wednesday, as I've called it in the title, right? The fire looked good, and the U.S. don't. So we're starting with the fire here. A 3 nothing victory over CF Montreal, almost called him the Montreal Impact again. And if I remember reading some of the, the post-game notes and trivia about this, that this is the Fire's first like multi-goal victory all season. They've only ever won any game by, by only a goal. Things got off to an auspicious start or delayed start, given all the tornado warnings and things. And I hope everyone in the Chicago area is safe and doing well and wasn't terribly affected by the severe weather that was going on. Um, but regardless of the delayed start, regardless of the tornado, the Chicago Fire actually played a pretty good match. And really what stood out to me, it was the, that first 20 to 30 minutes of that game. They did all the things correctly that they have failed to do, not just this season, but over the last several years. They converted early chances. They didn't have any of those point-blank misses come back to bite them later in the game. They kept up the pressure. It wasn't like they scored a goal and took the foot off the pressure or dropped back into a complete defensive shell or they score, get complacent, or miss a good opportunity and then get depressed. They kept the pressure up that first half hour after bagging the first two goals. They didn't play down to their opponent. In our last episode, we talked about how Montreal was a playoff team coming into this weekend by virtue of the fact that everyone else below them is so bad and that nine teams make the playoffs in a 15-team Eastern Conference. So the Fire did not play down to Montreal's level. And they didn't pick up silly yellow cards. They didn't lose their temper. They didn't do anything stupid like kick the ball away or, or delay restarts or anything like that or argue with the referees. The fire, and again, they held their defensive shape, saw the match out. So the fire, all the things that they screwed up the last several years, they didn't commit any one of those errors during the first half of this match, nay, during the entire 90 minutes of this match. And that really helped them control the game and keep the pressure up and then get those goals. Also, one other thing to point out before we talk about those goals Homegrown Misiel Rodriguez got his first major league soccer appearance. So congratulations to Misa Rodriguez. He's 
from Chicago, homegrown, part of the Chicago Fire Academy, played with CF2, finally gets his call up uh, to the fire. If I remember right, he's been on the bench 12, 13 times already, but this was his first appearance. So congrats to him. And I hope that the fire all of a sudden don't think, oh my gosh, we're a playoff team. We got to only play certain guys and and they still kind of rotate guys in in the right circumstances and get some of these CF2 guys some minutes to see if they can hack it at the senior level. All right, looking at the goals. The first one comes early, comes from none other than Brian Gutierrez in the ninth minute. But the story of this goal is Yorgos Kutsias' work rate. That was the main thing here. The play started with a wild clearance by Chris Brady. He comes out like 20 yards off his line. He's outside the box and sweeper keeper just boots the ball downfield. Uh, another fire player heads the ball forward. It might have been Guti himself. Kutsius then just takes off. He gets on his horse, dribbles it down to the end line, and that's when the defenders kind of collapse on him. Two, maybe three defenders collapse on him. He's able to pull the ball back, find Gutierrez, who slots it home from close range. It's an excellent play. It's how the Fire have wanted to play counterattacking soccer throughout the course of this last year and a half, um, or at least ever since Klopas took over. It's how they've wanted to be playing their counterattacking soccer. Ezra wanted to use a lot more of his wingbacks in, in that, but we're digressing here. Um, the Fire get a good counterattacking goal, and it's their two young stars who are contributing to it. And this is what we need to see more of. And let me go off on a little tangent here about Brian Gutierrez. Despite the interest uh, for, in Gutierrez by teams like Manchester United, uh, maybe some Bundesliga clubs, maybe a Serie A club in Italy, it, is it too much to hope that he's going to stay with the Chicago Fire and the Fire build a team around Gutierrez? And then you have Yorgos Kutsias who can maybe slot into that under-22 young DP role and then maybe become a DP once they sign a DP striker for two years and then uh, that player moves on. And then you've got Gutierrez as maybe like a Max Tam player, Kutsias as a DP, and then you build around around those guys. I mean, Fede Navarro, when he's healthy and available, pretty solid defensive midfielder. We've got Chihos, Tehran, and Olmsberg, who are three quality MLS center backs and everyone's been talking about the fire building up the wing backs or the outside backs positions because you know you've got Maren Haile Selassie and Chris Mueller who are average to above average maybe MLS wingers like there's a there's a decent blueprint here for the fire if they keep Brian Gutierrez and they keep Yorgos Kutsias and those two guys here's the big if if they keep developing a lot of people are saying and with good reason that brian gutierrez needs to go abroad to further his development now there are a lot of things in his game that he can still develop with another year or two in major league soccer and they might not be in a huge hurry to transfer him now he's only 20 21 years old maybe uh 20 i think i don't know if he turned 21 during the season or not but he's only, I think he's only 20 He's got to develop his left foot. We've talked about that in Twitter conversations during the course of the game. He needs to play faster not, uh, and be able to anticipate. You look at Jared and Shakiri, and again, it's 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 a wide comparison here between Shakiri's skill level and, and Gutierrez. But as an example on the team, you look at Shakiri, within two touches, he's already played a, a pass into space for an onrushing winger or towards a striker 
making a run, right? He he knows exactly where his teammates are going to be or where he expects his teammates to be, where they need to be, especially when they're working on stuff and on the training pitch. He's not getting the ball and reading the field. He's already read the field and knows where he's going to go with the ball as he's receiving the pass. So Gutierrez needs to develop quicker decision-making, work on his left foot a little bit. But what I do love to see is that he will get the ball and drive it forward. If he's ever unsure of what to do, he, he's got the confidence to dribble and drive and progress the ball forward. So there's a few little things that Gutierrez can still learn in Major League Soccer. He shouldn't be in a rush to go overseas for development's sake or just to, to transfer for transfer's sake. Then again, I'm not going to be the one to tell a kid, don't don't take your dream of going abroad uh, when it presents itself to you. So that's just kind of my thought on it. And if the fire can develop Gutierrez and Kutsius more, and if Major League Soccer as a league continues to improve, then certain players might not have to transfer overseas to bigger clubs, top five leagues, all that sort of thing, in order to improve their own quality. Obviously, a lot of the a lot of the appeal to that is the name recognition. It's the it's the building the connections between clubs around the world. It's the fire getting those transfer fees. It's MLS promoting it. You know, it's players who want their, their dreams fulfilled of playing in big clubs in Europe. And it's fans who still hold those clubs as the epitome of the sport and want to see their guys, their homegrowns, their kid from Chicago, you know, going off to these big clubs. So I, I get it, but I just... I don't want anyone to transfer for transfer sake when he can still spend another year or two in major league soccer and continue to develop. Now the next goal in the 11th minute, Marin Haile Selassie gets the goal off another Kutsius hustle play similar to the first. And the funny thing in this one is that Kutsius gets down to the touchline and plays it back across to Haile Selassie, but Shakiri was kind of maybe in the way of the pass so Shakiri sticks his foot out instinctively. It deflects off his toe, goes to Selassie for the goal. So Shakiri actually is credited with the assist. And you hear Kutsius joking post game in the locker room that you know Shakiri stole that assist from me. I should get, I should have had an assist and a half during that game, not just the one. So good camaraderie, good laughing. And you saw Kutsius when these goals were scored, especially Shakiri when he scored his goal. Kutsius is celebrating more than anybody. He's jumping on people. He's jumping up. He's pumping his fists, smiling, yelling. Like he is, it looks like he is finally having a good time. He's finally got confidence. He played like it. He played like someone challenged him to do well this game and dividends, right? Dividends paid off. And I wonder if that had anything to do with Casper Shabilko not dressing for this game. He, it was a coach's decision. He was a healthy scratch from the lineup. And in fact, there were pictures of him on Twitter hanging out at like the pretzel stand with his family before going to find his seats to watch the game. So I wonder if the fact that Shabilko is was not there, Kutsi has got to play a little more free or with a little more confidence. And then the last goal, Shakiri in the 33rd minute, set piece goal. Now these help struggling teams really build confidence and, and start to build momentum. Now, the fire hadn't been struggling in this game, but to show a set-piece play that they had been working on in training, to see it go in the back of the net as you draw it up really gives teams a boost. And for it to be Jardin Shakiri, your star, your face of your franchise right now, gives you even more of that confidence and joy and good vibes going forward from here. But the best part about it for me as the fan watching it was everyone played their part. 
You had Gutierrez and Shakiri over the ball. Gutierrez makes the dummy run, maybe trying to draw the goalie away, maybe trying to draw some defenders away um, down to the to the corner flag. He makes the dummy run over the ball, does not take the cross. Shakiri then plays the ball kind of short, but it's a low hard pass, which we've seen some Chicago Fire players have trouble with the pace of Shakiri's passes. Right, it's like a a really good quarterback in the NFL zipping passes to wide receivers who aren't used to getting pinged in the hands like that. And they end up dropping balls and deflecting things where here, Haile Selassie is able to control the ball. He anticipates it. They've worked on it. He knows the pace that's coming with it and he lays it off one touch that takes so much skill, a ball zipped in like that for him to one touch, lay it off at the right speed for Shakiri to strike it one time and in the right location for Shakiri to strike it one time. He doesn't play it too far behind him, in front of him. It's in the perfect spot. You see all the other players making their runs in like they're crossing, uh, like they're going to receive a cross, keeping the defense back, keeping the goalie on his line and honest, not being able to maybe get a couple extra steps, cut an angle down. But in this case, the shot was so good. Hit it perfectly this was the perfectly executed set piece play i have not seen a better set piece play like this all season throughout the entire league it was incredible and maybe the best goal the fire scored all year and again complete team effort from the training pitch to the execution of individual roles to shakiri finding the back of the net phenomenal you're gonna we're now going to take a quick look at some of the statistics of the game. And like we said, this was a really, really good performance by the Chicago Fire in a lot of aspects. But as the game went on, there were moments where Montreal possibly could have gotten a goal back, maybe changed some of the momentum of the game, maybe put the fire on their heels. And with the various um, fouls and Chihos picking up a yellow card, possibly Montreal could have taken advantage of that. They didn't thankfully, but let's see what the statistics bear out and see if this win is as big and as great of a win as the Chicago Fire are feeling right now. The Fire only had 38% possession uh, over the course of the of the match, and a lot of that is second half. They pulled back a little bit. We saw some defensive subs. Again, we saw Misael Rodriguez get his start. Usually you're going to try and play conservatively when you do have someone coming in like that. So the possession was not very surprising to me, especially because the fire's offense came so quick and it came on counterattacks. So the fire, if they are going to try and, and see games out with a one goal lead, they are going to need to work on their possession. Uh, five shots, five shots on goal. So at least they were putting their shots on target, but they still need to generate more offense. Uh, total passes, 353, that's one of their lower passing totals this season, and the accuracy was only 75, 76%. So while when they were trying to play the ball, it was in more attacking areas, um, but again, they didn't have possession. One cross, one offside, uh, so they're not getting into those corner spaces, they're not passing the ball. But if they're continuing to generate opportunities on counterattacks, then maybe your strategy changes from getting players in the corners like Suke, Navarro, Haile Selassie, Shakiri, and crossing the ball into Shabilko or Kamara. With Kutsias up front, maybe that changes their tactics a little bit, and they want to play more direct from the midfield or counterattacking through Gutierrez and Kutsias. That could change. Look at these crossing numbers and see how that, how that changes going forward. 
They were winning their duels, uh, 53 to 47. Uh, 10 win tackles to Montreal's 13. Uh, Brady with four saves. Again, he had some big saves. Always ready. That's what I love about him on top of everything else is that he, he does not mentally check out at any point in this game. 24 clearances to Montreal's four. So, yeah, the Fire were doing a lot of work on defense. They committed 10 fouls, and they got three yellow cards. Now, I'm saying before that they didn't commit silly fouls, get silly yellow cards, dumb plays where, you know, you're losing awareness of the game about you. But it, their yellow cards were, were solid. The Chihos one was iffy. That one, is I think, is more on the official than it was Chihos picking up a silly yellow. But I'll take those in return for three goals and three points. Now, looking at some of the advanced offensive numbers, expected goals here, the Chicago Fire had 1.3 expected goals. So they outperformed their XG, but again, only five shots. Now, those shots were high percentage shots. I think they were uh, the first two goals were like 20 to 30% um, scoring opportunities. Shakiri's goal, though, was given a 2.51% by the metrics and he converted it. So that tells you just how great of a goal it was, how skillful of a goal it was. But it also tells you that the fires free kick opportunity generation there was, was very low. So it was a very high risk, high reward scenario. Unfortunately, it worked out for them. Um, the other two shots that the fire had that they did not score on uh, one shot in about the 17th minute or so only had like a, a four or five percent chance to go in, I believe. But the other one, just after the 60th minute, that one was about like a 30 or 40 percent chance of going in. So the fire again still need to generate more offense. That could come back to bite them, especially hopefully not if any tiebreakers go down to goal differential. All right. So what does all this mean? We've talked about it's it feels good, it feels great. Three goals, Shakiri scoring, young players stepping up, senior players holding it down. Have the fire turned a corner? I'm going to reserve judgment until after tomorrow's Toronto game. If they beat TFC, then I will say, yes, the fire have turned a corner. They, they are beating, they're beating the bad teams. They're competing with the good teams. They even beat a good Nashville team. Um, they, they're be, they, they caught Kansas city at the right time. I think I, I, I will say confidently if the fire beat Toronto, that they have turned a corner. Um, and then we'll see what happens after the League's Cup break. But if they beat Toronto, they'll be in a playoff position going into that League's Cup break with momentum and confidence. What is? It's almost like we have to divide the season from everything that happened before July uh, or, or everything that happened before that middle June break. Because since coming back from that week or two off mid-June, it's been four wins and five Two, uh, one win over Nashville, one, and then wins over Kansas City, Portland, and Montreal. So that has them trending in the right direction um, because they haven't had much success against teams who are top six in the Eastern Conference. And if you can't beat the top teams, you rarely make it into the playoffs. But fortunately, again, for the Chicago Fire and other teams, nine of 15 teams are going to make the playoffs. So you just got to be better than five other teams. Or six other teams. Six other teams. That's it. Um, 
Let's take a quick sponsorship break here. I want to remind everyone that the show is brought to you by Skira Icelandic Spring Water. Icelandic for clear, Skira water comes from a government-protected nature preserve in Iceland with naturally low mineral content. This isn't your average water, clearly, pun intended. It's one of the best. Thanks again to Skira Icelandic Spring Water, available at your local 7-Eleven. Now let's point out a few notable matches. Last week I said check into New England Atlanta and... SKC RSL. New England did not disappoint. They scored quickly and had a lot of offense in the first few minutes of that game. Jump out to a quick 2-0 lead and hold on for 2-1 victory, kind of cementing themselves as that number two team in the Eastern Conference for the time being. Also, sporting Kansas City and RSL did not disappoint. Kansas City, if I recall, because my notes didn't get updated, my fault there, uh, Kansas City getting getting a win, if not a draw on points in that game. What I'm looking forward to this upcoming weekend, Cincinnati hosting Nashville. Now, Nashville, are they going to get back to full strength? With Zimmerman back in the lineup playing at 100%, are they going to get some of their uh, international players back? I don't know, Andy Balgadoy is still down in Gold Cup with Panama, foreshadowing our next topic. Um, so I don't know if they will have a full complement of players. Can Cincinnati take advantage of that going into uh, the league's cup break, especially with Lucho Acosta being named captain for the all-star team. Then you have Atlanta hosting Orlando, another game for me to watch. I'm enjoying watching Atlanta just because they have uh, the, the potential for big goals, lots of goals, bangers, golosos, whatever you want to call them. Uh, but this game against Orlando is going to help determine playoff positioning and seeding. So that's why I'm including it on my watch list. Going to the Western Conference, Austin versus Kansas City. Um, I've picked Kansas City a lot as my team to watch because they're slowly rising up the standings. They still aren't in a playoff position, but a win versus Austin could have them in a playoff position going into the League's Cup break. So a lot to watch for SKC and Austin trying to balance the ship after free-falling a little bit. And then finally, of course, Chicago hosting Toronto FC, a Toronto FC in turmoil coming in Saturday, July 15th. Let's take a look at some players to watch for TFC. Every conversation with this club starts with the Italians, with Bernardeschi and Insigne. If they are healthy and it doesn't look like they will be, the last availability report that I saw just a day or two ago shows Bernardeschi is out due to yellow card accumulation and Lorenzo Insigne is questionable due to a lower body injury. He, I don't believe he played in the midweek game. Uh, so maybe he will then feature significantly this weekend. Additionally, according to this report, uh, Michael Bradley, Adama Diamande, Christian Gutierrez, and Victor Vasquez all out and questionable. Matt Hedges, DeAndre Kerr, Greg Ranjasing, and Sigurd Rosted. Um, so a lot of guys knocked up. Knocked up? Nope. A lot of guys picked up knocks. That's better. Uh, for TFC. So they are going to be having to dig deep, go to the well. And actually, according to MLSsoccer.com, Toronto has used 34 players in league play this season, four more than any other team this year. It is also the most players Toronto has used in a single season since they used 35 players back in 2013. And that was not a good season for them either. Six wins uh, on route to 29 points. So some patterns here with some bad seasons past. A couple other names, though, to mention. Richie Larea has kind of grown to, to be a focal point 
uh, for them. Uh, but he may not be available due to uh, international play. I'm sorry, not international play. I didn't see him in last week's starting lineup. Um, so we will see how they end up using uh, Richie Larea in this matchup. Um, another player to keep an eye on is uh, Mark Anthony K. Mark Anthony K. Has ha- has shown flashes. He's still got that skill there, but just hasn't done it consistently. He has not been that offensive threat that uh, that Toronto has been hoping for. In fact, that several teams have been hoping for, including Canada. Um, so those are a couple names to keep an eye on. Also, um, younger players to look. Jaquiel Marshall Ruddy. If he can kind of keep some of his wild tackles under control, I think he's got the potential to be a very good winger. Could influence this game. Io Akinola. He's been a striker that last couple years, or I should say a couple years ago, it was, wow, is he the next big striker for Canada? Is he the next big striker for the U.S.? Is he going to go back to uh, his his ancestry? I think he his family originally is from Nigeria. Could be wrong on that, but where is he going to be the next big striker to? To now he is struggling with TFC. Still has moments. Got to keep an eye on him uh, as well. All right, let's take a look at how TFC kind of plays tactically. They have been lining up in a 4-4-2 formation over the last several games. And considering the fact that they've parted ways with Bob Bradley and that they've got the interim manager and they got a lot of guys who've picked up Knox and who may not be available, I don't see them going away from this. 4-4-2, very standard um, if if you need to preserve your defensive lines and then as well as build into offense. So I wouldn't, I, I don't see them uh, changing their starting formation and I don't see them changing their tactics from wanting to run it on the wings with Marshall Ruddy, with Kerr, and then looking for counterattacks with Sapong or Akinola up top. If, if Chicago can keep the pressure up, they pretty much need a repeat game of Montreal. If they can get out to a quick start, keep Toronto on their defensive heels it could be another 3-0, 3-1 game in favor of the Fire. Toronto has had a lot of defensive woes. Even when a healthy team, even when their lineup is set, and their choice 11 is out there, they have always had a problem leaking goals. Additionally, if you look at their goalkeeping, they are fourth worst in goalkeeping in the league as far as save percentage, and they have the worst goal differential tied with Colorado at minus 14. So this could be another opportunity for Chicago to get a few goals and beef up their goal differential uh, against teams similar to them in the standings, like Red Bulls, like Montreal, like a DC. All right, odds predictions. Here we go. Chicago Fire, according to BetMGM, are at minus 150. So the Fire this might be the game they are the most favored all season, if I recall, especially looking at the draw being plus 290 and Toronto to win at plus 360. So you bet 100 bucks. If Toronto wins, you get 360. Meanwhile, you have to bet 150 to get 100 if the Fire win. Fire are the home team. They're on a hot streak. TFC is reeling. And for all the reasons we've talked about above, I am picking Chicago as a 2-1 winner in this match. I think it's only going to be 2-1. Um, first of all, I picked them to beat Montreal 2-1, so hopefully we can keep some good mojo going with that kind of pick. Uh, but secondly, 
again, you had the midweek game. You're coming into the weekend. The fire also took a few knocks on their back line, so they may have to rotate some guys in and around. Um, and are they? is Kutsias going to be able to have a repeat performance? Is Gutierrez and Shakiri going to be able to have a repeat performance? Uh, I hope so, but I am confident. And why spoil the party? 2-1 fire victory. All right, quickly now, we've got a few minutes left. I want to talk about the USMNT and their Gold Cup failure. People are calling it a failure. People are calling it a low point. People have compared the losing to Panama in the Gold Cup semis to the Trinidad and Tobago World Cup qualifying debacle in 2018. The fact of the matter is here, people, at least in, 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 my, in my opinion, the fact is, the fact is it was the U.S.'s third choice team. They sent their youngsters and a couple of veterans. The only starter for the USMNT when it comes to real World Cup qualifying games, it was Matt Turner. No one on this squad is, is going to be starting in a World Cup qualifying game unless they do something dramatic or unless there's a, a little shuffling of the striker pool. Because I could see Jesus Ferreira getting a start in World Cup qualifying. I could see Brandon Vasquez getting a start in World Cup qualifying if they continue their stellar play into uh, throughout the club season. And then looking ahead to the October friendlies, um, the U.S. has four friendlies, two against not-so-good teams, two against good teams. Um, one of the not-so-good teams, Uzbekistan, and I think Oman is the other team that they're the, the not so good team and then they're playing Ghana and Germany as well so if you bring and yes I've already moved into the striker discussion part of this segment if you bring in Ricardo Pepe if you bring in Josh Sargent um, Jordan Pifak and I'm, I'm spacing on who else is in the pool right now if you bring those guys in for those friendlies and they do well against Germany and Ghana then I think those are going to be your guys you bring into World Cup qualifying after that but if they look mediocre, that does open the door to say, we're going to bring in Brandon Vasquez and Ricardo Pepe, and those are going to be our one-two. Or we're going to bring in Jordan Pifak and Jesus Ferreira as our one-two kind of thing. I think Florin Balligan is the only one who's guaranteed to be on the roster for World Cup qualifying as a striker. So if he's your one number one, then you can have those guys as your, say, two-three. Um, I really think the striker pool, we can't make any sort of hard decisions on it until these fall, these October friendlies. Getting back to the bigger picture, you know, the, on the one hand, the U.S. brought their C team and to fall in penalty kicks to to Panama isn't the most outlandish thing to happen, isn't the most unexpected thing to happen. Yeah, they should have beat them. Like, I, I am of that opinion that the United States, even their C team, Jordi Mihailovic is better than Panama's starters. I, I think that, and that has to be the expectation that we need to get our second and third stringers to be better than the rest of the Confederation with the exception maybe of Mexico, Canada, and say a handful of Costa Rica, Panama, Jamaica players. But I don't think it's unreasonable to say that these guys need to be playing better than their counterparts starting for Panama. On the other hand, the other narrative I'm seeing is, oh, it's all Burhalter's fault and the MLSers. Christian Roldan and Jesus Ferreira ruined everything for us. They're only good against terrible Caribbean island nations. Okay, I, I mean, that is so one end of the spectrum of this that it's it's ridiculous to even address it anymore. The only thing I will say is I will agree with the rolled on stuff. And I got into a very 
strong discussion in my group chat. Um, shout out to all the guys in the Chicago Fire group chat. Um, where what was interesting is we both agreed that Roldan shouldn't be playing meaningful minutes for the USMNT anymore, uh, and that he should have never been put in that position to take that penalty kick. But where I broke away with with my buddies in the group chat was, but there is a position for him on the roster. On a 23 to 26 man roster, you're still only having maybe 16 guys to 18 guys playing, right? 11 on the field, five subs. So in any game, you're only going to have 16 players walk out onto the pitch. The problem becomes when you get into tournament play, you still have, you have to extend that a little further down the line, you probably need to have another five guys. So that's when you get to that 23, that end of the roster. And it was really hard. The U.S. did not do a good job of managing their legs during the course of this tournament. Big learning experience for B.J. Callahan and co. But you've got the last one or two guys on the roster spot, right? Those are guys who should not be getting minutes, but those are your senior leaders. Those are guys like Christian Roldan who do have a value being at training being in the locker room and being on the bench, you know, keeping them, te- keeping the teammates tempered when things go well and picking them up, encouraging them when things aren't. So I think there is a role because if you bring in a complete team of, you know, say guys who have never played at this level before, then what are they going to do? They don't know what to expect. The first game is going to be a shocker for them. And you can't afford to have a down game in a Gold Cup or, God forbid, in World Cup qualifying and World Cup group stage play. So the, in my opinion, there is still value for players like Roldan. But I think after this Gold Cup and how the USA fell to Panama and how Roldan had to be called on to play in meaningful situations, I am okay if his time with the USMNT is over or limited to like gold cup group stage games. I would be okay with that. Some other players that stood out to me in watching this. Um, I, I think we saw Cade Cowell and Jordy Mihailovic have some real standout moment moments. However, they're both not without holes in their game. Cowell is physical. He is fast. He is direct, but he's got to work a little bit on his passing and a little bit on, on some of those first touches. That comes with time. He's still young. Um, Mihailovic is a very good player, and I think he he fits well within CONCACAF at, at that national team level. However, where you want to see a guy like him in that in playing centrally, you want to see him elevating his teammates. He did not do that during the course of this tournament, especially in the knockout rounds where it counted most. He's a good player. If you surround him with excellent players, he will play very well. If you surround him with C-teamers, then he's still just going to be a good player. So he needs to know how to step up and start setting up his teammates for success rather than just looking at himself playing very well. Nothing he can't learn, and I'm being nitpicky here, I know. We saw a lot of solid play from Busio, Token, Gressel, Dwan Jones, I think, looked pretty solid. He got in a few bad spots but was able to recover. And that's just going to come with more time at the international level, assuming he continues to get call-ups. But again, I think we can safely remove Matt Miazga, Jordan Morris, Christian Roldan from the USMNT conversation with the exception of, like I said, some group stage games, um, you know, maybe keeping Morrison 
actually you wouldn't want to keep Morrison uh, for a senior leader type of position like a rolled on. Uh, I just don't think that's him. And, and you want to have the availability for more strikers and wingers that he would occupy that space. I don't think Miazga is that leader. Um, so again, I am okay if these guys are removed from the pool completely or limited to say non-World Cup qualifying or non-World Cup impact games like the Nations League, um, depending on your opponent, right? So that is what I want to put out there for comment. Go on the record for that. Um, as far as the USMNT, you know, we have seen the development and the depth of the player pool over the last five years. It, it you know, we just had when when it was. Michael Bradley and Josie Altador and Landon Donovan and Chris Dempsey and those, Clint Dempsey and those guys as the core, we had like 23 guys and that was it. Couldn't go find a guy from MLS or playing somewhere around the world to step up and, and be a meaningful part of that club or that squad. Now we have our starting 11. We've got five or six really good subs. We've got another seven or eight guys who can step into that role. We have an 11... A, a starting 11 at that kind of third tier level who can kind of hold their own against most of the teams in CONCACAF. So the pool has grown. It has expanded. That's the bigger picture of U.S. soccer over the last five years. Grow the pool and who can step up and provide that depth. So when we're in the World Cup and we only have that one sub to make in that last group stage game you need to win, you know it's going to be a quality player with experience in those situations and not say, sorry, dude, I'm going to throw you under the bus here and not say Jackson Ewell stepping in as an injury replacement. It like he did in the gold cup games. All right. With all of that, we're going to wrap for this episode. I hope the USA continues to build and grow. Good luck to Panama versus Mexico uh, on the Sunday evening gold cup final. If you want to continue the conversation, find me on Twitter, on YouTube, at Glasshouse Soccer, also on Facebook. You can email me, glasshousesoccer at gmail.com. Otherwise, share the show, grow the conversation around MLS and soccer here in the United States, rate and review, have a wonderful match weekend. Let's go fire.